this is where radio or audio really excels because it forces you to imagine what's happening and that's I think that's powerful. Bullfighting is part of our culture since the 8th century. And as a cultural event cannot be banned. And I was like, why aren't we trying to turn this data sphere into good stories for people? This is the sound of the pound against the dollar. Each chime is a passing day. It's an amazing piece of sound. It just sends chills down your spine. My name is Neil Rosell. I'm a journalist with the BBC. I make radio documentaries, mostly foreign ones, and I'm going to give you a masterclass in the use of sound. Hello and welcome to the masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Every week we're going to have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking sound with Neil Rizel. He's an award-winning programme maker for the BBC who does long-form programmes and radio documentaries, and he's a whiz with sound. Neil, everybody always talks about thinking in sound. I mean, how do you learn to think in sound? I think it comes from listening to music and just absorbing sound when you're young. And then also when you're out doing the job, it's about presence and just using your senses and paying attention to not just perhaps what somebody is saying, but what is going on around you, because sometimes the story isn't right in front of you. So you need to just be aware. So when you're going out to record a story, do you have in your head a clear idea of the kind of sounds that you're looking for? Or how do you go about finding the sounds that you need? A bit of both. So there's improvisation, but you know, when we go out for a story, we'll definitely map out what are some of the kind of key scenes or moments that we're looking for, and then really try and hone in on those to make sure that we get good close-up sound of the events that we need or the moments we need. And then within that, to construct a beginning, a middle, and end of each scene, if possible, so that while you're recording, you're listening for an out or for an edit and things that, yep, we can stop there or start here. Let's use some examples. I really enjoyed a documentary that you did about Spain's battle for the bull, um, all about the future of bullfighting in Spain. And maybe we could listen to a bit of the beginning of that package and then you can tell me about sort of how you decided to do it that way. And they're off. We're in Spain for the bullfighting season. It begins with the running of the bulls. In a suburb of Madrid, they've closed the streets and let loose a herd of half-ton killers, which is tearing after a crowd of people who think they can outrun it. Oh, we can see them. Here they come now. These guys are running. Whoa! 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 There are hundreds of them, a stampede of men, women, and animals. Some of those guys were very close to the horns, just at the bend here. One was pressing his chest in toward the fence to avoid getting caught by it. It swept around the corner, and that's it. It's all over in seconds. So that's just such a beautifully descriptive start. It really puts us on the scene. But when I think about it, it's actually quite complicated what you've done, isn't it? Because part of it's recorded in the studio, part of it's recorded on on scene, and then you've mixed sound as well, haven't you? 
there's a lot going on there. So one of the things is we had two microphones or two recorders at the scene. So we had one set up as close as we could get it to the street because I had to stand up on a platform just above the street looking down on it. And what we really wanted was the dream sound you, you, you hope for going out. It's like you get a nice snort of the animal, you get the hooves. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't quite get that, but what, you know, we, we at least went for it. And so we had a microphone right down, a stereo microphone down at street level to capture the transition of, of the crowd and the animals from one side to the other, one channel to the other. And then I was on a mono mic standing up above, just kind of blithering away. And then what we do is we get back to the studio is we, you know, we cut out the, the worst bits of me and put in a bit of script to help, you know, signpost things and then run that stereo track, the best of that underneath it. So yeah, a li little bit going on. I mean, it's actually quite simple once you've done it once or twice, you just think, okay, if listeners are familiar with doing television, perhaps it's like, you know, make sure you're getting your wide shot and then get in for your close-ups. So you talk about stereo mics and mono mics. When you're starting out in audio, I mean, how important is it to learn how to use a mono mic or a stereo mic? Or can you make great radio with a mono mic? Do you really need to be thinking about those things? I would say no. When you're starting out or, you know, at any point, really, a mono mic is sufficient to make award-winning, beautiful, emotional, jaw-dropping radio. There's no question that you need a stereo mic to do that. But, you know, once you master the mono mic and, and the basics of it, then, you know, it is something to think about because it's just another trick that you can play with listeners. I spent years just working in mono and most people, not I wouldn't say most people do, but many people do. You could get away with it more in the era before people were listening on smartphones when stereo was going to be an option. So, for instance, on BBC World Service Radio, it broadcasts in mono, so there's not a lot of reason to record in stereo. If people are able to listen in stereo, which they increasingly are, it's a much wider sound, and you can get this sense of movement of from left to right. And if you're listening on headphones, it can be quite powerful. It's really good at transporting you to a scene. Great. Now, I wanted to ask you more about how you constructed this piece. And I did notice just how artfully you used all that background sound and particularly music sometimes to sort of cover um, context and explanation and, and make it just sort of slip it in so nobody notices. Let's play an example. There are three matadors in a bullfight. Each has to kill two bulls. The whole thing lasts a couple of hours, but the festivals built around them can last a week, and it all costs money, some of it public money, which is where opponents are focusing their efforts. Matador has the sword in his right hand, the red cape in the left. He's dragging it back and forth across the sand. There's the bull passing close, right next to him. He's leading it on. They regard each other. Bull's head is down, tongue is out. And he's flipped the cape. They like it. The bull is panting in the middle of the ring. The matador is walking very slowly back towards him. And arms length apart, he's done it. He's driven the sword into him. And the people are on their feet. And the matador and his assistant are walking away, dragging their capes across the sand. That's a 
my first bullfight, and I don't know what to think. I've been really concentrating on describing it. Uh, I don't really feel anything. So in that example, you're kind of using the music almost like chapter breaks, aren't you? That's exactly right. We're using the music to create these little chapters, these tiny like micro scenes within it. And, you know, we do that by recording, you know, so the, the bullfight lasts a long time, unless you're the bull, in which case it doesn't quite last long enough, does it? But <laughs> And so there's all this sound going on in this arena and you know there's there's the band playing there's people talking and there's people you know like shouting out and trying to you know encourage the uh, the matador on and then there the, the the cheers and there's all this stuff going on and so you know we just recorded the shit out of this event basically we recorded everything <laughs> we possibly could and then you know when you get back in the studio you know, of course you have way more material than you could ever use but by having all of that stuff you're able to compress the event into something that people can just sit and listen to you know in the course of a 20-minute program or something or whatever it was and it just it gives you lots of options in the edit so I mean I think that's a, that's a key thing that newcomers to the craft need to think about it's when you're out there you need to be thinking about the edit and what are the things you might need to make your piece sing what are the things you're going to need to make transitions how are you going to get yourself out of a corner? And sound can really help you with that. So I'm not a natural live broadcaster. You know, I, I, I couldn't give you two minutes of beautiful bullfighting commentary. So it's also a way to kind of get around one of my shortcomings is to, yeah, just have lots of sound to give you options in the edit. I did notice as well that in the bullfighting piece, you not only used sound, but you also used the absence of sound. There was a very elegant transition that you made that I'm going to play from the bullring to the political arena, which I thought was very noticeable because there'd been so much sound and then suddenly there was none. Well, away from the blood and sand of the bullring are the polished parquet floors of Spain's minister for bullfighting. Bullfighting is part of our culture since the 8th century. Fernando Bentho's proper title is Undersecretary for Education and Culture. He's a member of the national government and a passionate supporter of bullfighting. But for all the trappings of high office, he seems powerless against the latest tactic to end bullfighting by cutting subsidies at the local level. What cannot be done right now, in my opinion, is to ban the bullfighting as a concept. So bullfighting as a cultural event cannot be banned. I mean, it's protected by the law. We have done that. So how often do you kind of use silence in that way in your pieces? As often as possible, because it is, it is the most powerful tool you have. If you can, you know, suddenly strip the sound away like that, it makes people jump and listen in the same way that if you hit them with a really loud bang or something like that, that'll make them listen. And so it's about creating texture within the piece using sound and just the pacing of your storytelling that can really keep people listening. What do you think about music? Because that's something that with podcasting, everybody is using music a lot more. Does kind of composed music have a part to play in news stories or, or not? Yeah, I'm not so much of a fan of it in news, to be honest. I think, I mean, you know, our colleagues in television use quite a bit of it. Well, not, not in news, actually, but in, you know, in television current affairs, they're big on it. 
And I think it can be overdone. And I'm sure I'm guilty of overdoing it uh, at times. I, I put my hand up, you know, uh, every time I make a program, it's new and the time pressures are quite intense. And you just think, was that right? But I do think there is a place for it. I do think it requires practice because if you get it wrong, then it, it's really clunky. And some of this will be cultural as well. You know, I mean, you know, the English go for understated, you know, the Americans a bit more in your face. You just got to kind of judge your audience. But ultimately, just ask yourself, does it sound good? Does what I'm listening to sound good? Do I want to listen to more of it or not? Am I hitting the right tone? And that can guide you, I think. Do you use music in your stuff, Louisa? I would use music, but only if it was kind of there on the scene. I wouldn't add music that wasn't there, but I did... Um, I am guilty of using a lot of adverts, right? <laughs> you know, to illustrate points. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> or when right. I felt that I needed a kind of chapter break. Yeah. So you know, the advert would be if you're just, for example, doing a story about smoking. If you could find an advert, yeah. uh, anti-smoking ad with kind of doomy, gloomy music, then I would be guilty of using then that. In. Then you're in, yeah. Or, you know, or the archive equivalent is, you know, reaching for the Pathé newsreel, you know, to say, you know, yes. the jelly troops are heading off. And, uh, you know, it's like, yes, things <laughs> happened in the past. Yeah. So, yeah, it can become a cliche. And, you know, we all lean on certain tools. But it also, I think, depends on the kind of story that you're telling. The bullfighting piece was very much a piece of reportage and the goal with that piece was really to take anybody who's listening to it and stick them in the middle of Spain in the middle of bullfighting season and give them a real sense of what it looks like it smells like and what are some of the politics going on behind it that's what that program was trying to do but some programs are more analytical you know you don't get that kind of blood and guts texture a lot so that's when production music can help you you know there was a time when it was like, you can't use production music, at least this was within the BBC. In, in my career, so I've been, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I've been with the BBC for 15, 16 years. And, you know, in that time, it was like, no, you just, you can't use music. And I go, okay, fine. And that was a decision that was made from on high. But, you know, that's been relaxed because audiences want it. Younger, younger audiences want it. And frankly, it just sounds good. Do you know, I mean, could you imagine if, especially with these longer stories, with documentaries, these big features, it is a story we're telling. And, and, you know, Hollywood is doing the same thing. And could you imagine if Hollywood was like, no, we can't use music. You know, it'd just be insane, insane. So there, there's space for it. You just got to learn how to do it. I wanted to talk about the radio documentary that you just did with Mike Thompson, who's a Radio 4 journalist on the fall of Aleppo in Syria and the fate of one woman who is given the name of Om, although her real name is kept secret. And I just thought it was very interesting how, in a way, the terrible sound conditions that you had, you know, there was these sort of crackly phone lines, dodgy Skype calls, lots of bad quality sound, but how that really created a mood. Was that on purpose? Did you think about that? To a degree, you just kind of use the materials to hand. And so, you know, obviously, you know, I think we said it in the piece that Mike basically couldn't go to Aleppo as it fell. Like nobody could go there. You know, it was just too dangerous. So these are the tools we have to reach out to people. You know, obviously we always want the best quality sound we can get. And sometimes the best quality sound we can get is terrible, but that's the best we can get. And so you use it. 
And I think you're right. I mean, I think it does make you lean in and it does reveal the the horror of the situation these people were in. They don't have an ISDN. They don't, have, they don't I mean, they barely had a phone. So the fact that you could hear their voices at all, I think is worth putting on the radio and I think, or, you know, in a, in a podcast. And I, and I think people, listeners are, you know, will appreciate that and hopefully lean in and, and find out what she has to say. Here's a voice message she sent me last December in the midst of an extraordinary chain of events. Please, please help us to get out uh, Aleppo. Me and my family and my neighbor, we are terrified. Please help us. Om is in the rebel-held area of the divided city of Aleppo. I'm in my bed in London more than 4,000 kilometres away. But it isn't the distance that matters. Pro-government forces have besieged eastern Aleppo for months. Now they appear to be going in to crush rebel forces there. The news confirmed the worst. Bombs falling on Om's part of town. Even the detached language of this UN spokesman makes my blood run cold. When you see the intensity of this new bombardment into an area that's just packed with civilians, it's almost certainly a war crime sort of being committed right now in eastern Aleppo. I try to reach on. Again and again. Finally. Yes, Mike. Tell me what is happening there now. Hello? Can you repeat the call again? Uh, yes, I will call you back. I'll call you again. Hello? Hello? How many children are there with you? More than 50 kids. More than 50 kids. Orphans. Orphans. Many of them orphans. You feel my eyes to see what I see. Over this scratchy, barely audible line, she says, if your eyes could see what my eyes see. If you were all to surrender, to come out to the troops, do you think you would be okay? Do you think you would be able... That broken telephone call and the voice message that she left, those two pieces of audio, I mean, those formed the core of the piece. It was like, we heard those and we're like, my goodness, we can definitely make a radio documentary out of this because they are just so gripping. You just, you hear the fear in her voice, you, uh, you know, which is not something you can really get in an interview afterward. You know, it is just, it's so immediate and raw and the peril is so clear that the fact that the line is terrible and breaking up that that is part of the story and and in fact that it is why the piece was commissioned you know it was just so gripping the, the audience who the the voice message first aired on uh something called the today program here in the uk which if your students don't know is like it's like the big agenda setting radio program in the uk uh news program and you know the audience response was incredible and so that's what you know inspired Mike to try and keep in touch with her and for us to make this longer piece, which went out after that first clip was aired. So 
uh, so I think that's the story of how the program came about. It was just people people loved it. It's an amazing piece of sound. It just sends chills down your spine, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, you know, I was just listening there. Even cutting to this, you know, we, we, we just anonymized the UN spokesman. And it's, you know, you hear the, the phrase war crimes. But when, when you hear it in that context, you know, when you have heard the voice of somebody who's in the middle of something like that, and then you hear the, the bombing and what that must be doing to people, and then you hear somebody say, yeah, it must be war crimes. That, for me, that just really brings home to people what we're talking about here. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was incredibly powerful. And, and it's something I don't think you could possibly even do in television. You know, I think this is, this is where, where radio or audio really excels because it forces you to imagine what's happening. And that's, I think that's more powerful. It's the, the space for the imagination that exactly. really, because you have to do some of the work as well. And I think that's why it's so powerful. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, you, you can't and, you know, I'll, I'll say from experience, just sit in front of the radio with your mouth open, you know, popping cheesies in, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, you've got to kind of engage with it a little bit. Have you tried? I try, I've tried. You just, it doesn't work. You know, whereas the television, that works. You can just sit there. And, uh, uh. Um, let us talk about the audiograph, which is something that I think you invented and pioneered. I did. Tell us how that came about, because I just think they were brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. So this was the result of a mumbled meeting I had with an editor, and there's so much going on, and I didn't even say it, forcing it out of my lips like I am right now. I really was just kind of mumbling, like, you know. Anyway, so I was like, so it's basically the credit to the editor for actually listening to me. You look around the media right now, and like, there's some amazing graphical representations of stories that are going on online. Television graphics are all whiz-bang. You know, there's a lot of effort going into visualizing data now, particularly on the web. And some of that is bleeding over into television. But nothing is happening on radio. And I was like, why aren't we trying to turn this data sphere into good stories for people, things that tell people something about the world that they're not otherwise getting? And he said, yeah, that's a really good idea. Why don't we do that? We have an example from July 2016 on the fall of the British pound in the aftermath of the Brexit vote. This is the sound of the pound against the dollar. Each chime is a passing day. The higher the note, the stronger the pound. We're in the run-up to Britain's vote to leave the European Union. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. A negotiation with the European Union will need to begin under a new Prime Minister. The option of a second referendum must be on the table. It will not be plain sailing in the days ahead. I believe we now have a glorious opportunity. Stab them in the back. Plotting for a coup. Economic post-traumatic stress disorder. I have never seen so contemptible and irresponsible. A situation. And one uncomfortable truth is that there are limits to what the Bank of England can do. It's just such a clever idea, but it sounds like an awful lot of work. I mean, how long did that take to do? I think it was either three or, yes, probably three days to do that, and including one full day in the studio with a guy called James Beard, who is one of our sound engineers here, and he is a master of mixing. 
I had a couple of days crunching the numbers and working on how do you convert the strength of the pound to sound? And the thing with audiographs is this, those sounds are precise. It's not like, oh, it went up a bit like this and it's like it went down like that. It's quite forensic stuff. For audiographs, I think to work, that's one of the things. It has to be clinical on the journalism. So I spent time working on how to, you know, relate those numbers to sound frequencies and then what that might be. And then what James does when we go into the studio is he helps finesse what the sounds will be. Yeah, I'm glad you like it because I think it was quite, it, it really speaks to the moment. I mean, it was just a crazy, crazy time in Britain. For your listeners who might not be familiar with uh, what those voices were, that was the political elite in meltdown because nobody expected this to happen. We lost a prime minister. There was, you know, absolute skullduggery in the circles of the Tory party about who would succeed David Cameron. You know, meanwhile, the rest of the world and investors are going, what has just happened? What does this mean? Nobody knew what that meant. And so this was a way to try and boil all of that back to whatever that was, 60 or 90 seconds, and just using information. Do you have a favorite audiograph? Gosh, uh, you know, we were talking about, the, you know, the power of silence and we made one about infant mortality and we used silence to mark out the progress, the amazing progress that the world has made in infant mortality in the last 40 years. So we kind of set up the thesis of what we're going to look at. And then I forget the precise number, but there's like maybe 12 seconds of silence. I mean, which is a lot. It's long enough that you check your... Radio, absolutely, or your device it, to see if it's working. Exactly, exactly. And, and indeed, we had to clear it because it went out on the Today program. We had to clear it with the network controllers. We're like, we're going to give you twelve seconds of silence or whatever it is. You know, like, hang on, this is in like prime time radio. We're going to be broadcasting silence. Get ready, um, because there are actually automatic mechanisms that the network has. It's like, oh, there's silence. They're, they'll cue up music after. So that one stands out. A fun one about fact-checking the flow of Mexican migrants to the United States over the years. The long border between the U.S. and Mexico is the world's most frequently crossed international boundary. The pace of this song represents the volume of Mexicans moving north into the U.S. We'll start in the 1950s. I really could go on about charting the global temperatures from 1890 to 2017 or something like that. And we made it as a musical composition, uh, which is worth listening to as well. Low notes are cold years, high notes are hot ones. So here we present the Earth's temperature from 1880 to 2015. Fantastic. And do you have, in all of your 20 years, is there a favorite radio moment that kind of speaks to you? I was working with a guy named Gary Young, who's a, a columnist at The Guardian. And um, he, he and I went to the United States just after Obama had been elected. So I guess this was early 2009. And we were doing a story, you know, like a doc about this belt of counties running from Arkansas up through uh, Kentucky, which responded to eight years of George Bush by 
voting more Republican, not less. Whereas the rest of the country had done the opposite. So it's like, well, what are these people thinking? Why did these counties go this way? It's a complicated, interesting answer and a great question to prompt a journey because you get to travel and, and take the listener to different places. There's a radio moment in that. And I didn't execute it well as the producer, but it still sticks with me. So it was coal country and Democrats are perceived to be anti-coal. And indeed, you know, Barack Obama had campaigned on his green credentials and, and a green vision. And so if you make your living out of digging coal out of the ground, that is not going to get your vote. Even under Republicans, the coal industry in the United States was suffering. And so we, we went to this, this town where people were anti-Obama, and then we went up to a closed mine, and it was frozen. We found like a pit with a skiff of ice across the top. And so I said, okay, here's what we have to do. Gary, you need to throw rocks onto that ice because it's going to sound beautiful, right? Because you're, you're in this mountain. There's nothing going on, so the sound echoes. You hear the sound and you're like, what is that? But you want to know what it is. And so I had him throwing rocks at the ice. And just here, there's a kind of ice-filled trough, which makes an eerie sound. If you throw a pebble down onto the ice, you can hear it. That's all there is. There is nothing else going on here. And in, in effect, that's really the problem. There is nothing else going on here. And then just riffing, you know, like this is the sound of nothing going on here. I'm at this mine. This is how people used to make their livings. This whole community was built around this and it's all stopped. And this is the thing which explains all the attitudes around here. And so it was a way to kind of give people a bit of like big context, big analysis, but to kind of, you know, really sugar the pill with this very evocative, interesting sound. Yeah, I was really interested in the way that you phrased that. You said as a producer, I didn't execute it properly. And it made me think of photographs, right? They're not taken, they're composed. Is that how you see the job of a producer to sort of compose and execute rather than to just record what's happening? You know, I've never thought of it that way, but I, I think you're absolutely right. As the producer, or if you're making your own stuff and you don't have a producer, you have to be thinking about, this is what I meant about presence. It's like, you need to be thinking about what is happening around you. And also, why am I doing this? Why, where does this fit into my story? What is my story? And you, it's this constant dialogue that will keep you awake at night. But that is what you need to be doing, I think. I mean, if there's an easier way, I'd love to hear it. But you just need to obsess about what is my story and how do these different elements fit into my story? And what have I already got in the can? And how do I make something sound different? You don't want to have everything all sounding the same. You know, so you've just got to, there are all these different elements you need to be weighing constantly while you're making these programs. Can you give us two top tips for people starting off a radio about how to use sound really effectively? If you're just starting out, you, you just got to overcome the fear of putting this thing in somebody's face. Because if it's, if it's not at their chin, if you're not getting good quality sound, if it's, you know, if you're here, I'm just going to back up. 
right? So like, I don't sound very good and you wouldn't want to listen to me very long at this distance. And this is, this is just a little bit off the mic. So you've got to get in there and that's how you make people, your audience really hear what the person is saying. So there's top tip one. Top tip two, ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. What, you know, what, what is the purpose? Why am I recording this sound? How might I use it? So just always be aware of what is this scene? What am I trying to say here? You know, that'll help you, I think. Great tips. Finally, before you go, I think you've got a task for our listeners. Okay, so my task would be take an interview you've already done, not a short one, you know, maybe anything from like four minutes on, could be as long as you like, I suppose, and play around with putting music to it. Score your interview. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This is so interesting talking to you. A great pleasure. And I apologize for rambling. That is uh, a bad (laughs) habit of mine. No, you didn't ramble at all. It was all interesting. Thank you. Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.